Welcome, friends, to The Flower of the Cedar, a novel in episodic podcast form. We are about to start the next chapter. Come, join us. Chapter 9 The Marked One Jan was touching her forehead, covering it with her open palm. Lara saw faint worry lacing her brow. When she saw Lara's eyes open, she said, You all right? You feel feverish? Lara sat up slowly. She did not feel warm. She felt cold chilled just at the edges, as though only fingers and toes had lain exposed all night. Her tongue tasted, tasted. She remembered the lilies, suddenly with poignancy, and turned to Jan with a smile. They had not taken to the road for some hours that morning while Lara told Jan what happened. Jan seemed particularly interested in the open space and the child seated in the grass. It was so different for me, was all she said, shaking her head at the story's end. Then she took Lara's hands in hers. I'm glad you found a heart seat at last. How long was I asleep? Just the night. Lara mused. I thought it was a week at least. Above them, the sky had grown uniformly grey, with the pale weight suggesting snow. Jan hopped on bent legs to Lara's side, tossing her thick body-length fringed shawl over both their shoulders. The finding sometimes seems that way. Me, I spent the longest coming to my heart's sea death, just at the base of the summer mountain, It seemed like... It was like a whole season cycle. So... Lara spoke slowly, twining one of the fringes round her finger. The heart seeds die in the end. She felt oddly numb saying this. Swallowing one had not changed the longing. She sensed more questions and some fear, and the smallest patience. In the silence that followed, she noticed how little birdsong could be heard. Winter had very nearly arrived. Faintly, she thought, Where will we stay to wait it out? We can't travel when the true cold comes. But she could not give much attention to this now, Her first question lingered in the air, unanswered. Must her hearts die in the end? Jan finally stirred. She said simply, Yes, in a low, gentle voice. 
and turned keen eyes on Lara's face. The heaviness in her gut had already known the answer. To stop searching for her heart's unimaginable. But so was continuing when she knew she would lose the object of the search the moment she reached it. She had thought this would feel differently, this heart-finding. She had not expected emptiness attendant. What was she doing here? What did it mean that she was very ugly and the beautiful one of the goddess? Who was the goddess? They walked seven miles that day and Lara noticed nothing. Her sinews and mind felt leaden, frozen. Why was she walking? Did it matter how cold she had become? She didn't like the cold. It encouraged withdrawal into her psyche, and her thoughts there could not resolve themselves. She had the wit to know that intention stood thick in the corners of her heart's seed finding, but what it was, its meaning, eluded her in all but one broad realization. She knew who she was. Small, formed, with a life within her whose springs came from mystery and beauty and welled up through her to an end as mysterious to her as her beginning. When she had first knelt in the awareness of this, she had done so comforted. But reflection and worry now came. Did all this leave her not only vulnerable, but vulnerable without recourse for self-protection? She did not know this goddess, she told herself. How could she be sure such a being would treat her gently? The pain from her turned ankle had dulled, but she still walked with a limp. Before they'd left, the girls had assembled something resembling a soft splint to support the muscles and bone. But the throb remained, just hovering. And so even in her flesh... She could not forget the tunnels of the goddess and the threshold of her messenger. Could she ask Jan some of these questions? Why was she reluctant? They sat for the midday meal comfortably, without speech, for a while. Then Lara said abruptly, Thank you. Jan smiled. For? Journeying with me, Lara said, looking at her hands. She fell silent, then said, I feel frozen. You've a lot to think on. Yes. The silence continued. Jan didn't push. She had learnt more than a few lessons in anxiousness and patience. There the year turned, achieving its death, growth, and harvests, without her needing to thrust it along its way. 
The year was like the heart, and she could wait. They noticed many changes in the country through which they journeyed those days. Jan said they had likely passed, just, the borders of Dryad lands, and begun to approach the hilly, broad spread of country before the northeast mountain ranges, most of which rose too suddenly and reached heights too harsh for any creature's habitation. The stories of the peoples closest to these mountains, the Mahoganies, said that the ice caverns above the tree-line had once held in them wells deeper than the mountain's roots, and the water that rose there, when drunk, opened the doors of the sky. But the ascent was not manageable for dryads, and so the stories remained as they were. The fairies who dwelt in the flatlands by the sea, which bordered the mahoganies to the west, were sometimes seen flying into the clouds gathered round the crowns of the mountains. Always they were solitary, never a group travelling merrily in company, nor yet even a pairing, but only a single lithe figure draped in its trailing gossamer, speeding through the moist airs with eyes bestial, bright. They did not stop. What business they had there, and what they saw in the mountains— the mahoganies did not know. Fairies' tales rambled, dipped, and misled like the hands and voice of a clever stage magician, except the tales' diversions veiled real magic, not the crux of an illusion. Did the wells exist, and had they drunk of them? ran the question. I came alone through vapors and falls, and when I arrived... I had come again to my home, ran the only answer. Or sometimes, These roots are not like the roots of trees, wet with earth beneath the leaves. We do not ask questions of mountain roots. Lara understood from the brief geographic sketch that Jan hoped to come upon one of the villages of the Mahoganies before winter sank in too deeply. The empty hill country belled out into Mahogany land, and they had probably come to the mouth of the bell. The distance, if they travelled due north, could not supply more than a fortnight of full walking days. They must be some weeks yet from the solstice, Lara supposed, but the next morning she woke to hoarfrost whispering over the grasses. Perhaps not so many weeks after all, she thought uneasily. For the first few hours, despite a brisk pace, the girls could not seem to flush the cold wholly from their limbs. Both had plain clothes beneath shirtwaists with long sleeves, and the material was not thin. But that day came in the arms of a cutting wind, and the cold pierced. Their noses ran, their ears rang, and Lara felt angry. But the anger was fear. Fear at their prospects.
The road they followed had forked at the border, and their arm of it was not more than a narrow cart track. Two ruts, grass between, and that withered with the approach of winter. The chances of transport passing, even the company of another traveller footing it, seemed slim. Not much traffic, trade or otherwise, came through these parts. The mahoganies reputedly kept to themselves, apart from sporadic relations with the fairies of the flatlands, and they did little trade outside their borders, being skilled enough artisans and workers of the land themselves to supply their own needs. They had never desired imported fineries from foreign craftsfolk, and even the travelling caravans of curio peddlers, like the woman who first told Lara of the Lamia, turned little profit among their self-sufficient communities. And so the shortest route between the southern cities and mahogany land took the prints of few feet. Lara's and Jan's disturbed its dust alone. Toward noon that day, the wind fell away and the pale gray cloud cover darkened. Jan and Lara, wordlessly, took their meal while walking, tossing back handfuls of oak nuts and sharing one of their carefully husbanded waybread biscuits. In the distance they could see the half-leaved forms of late autumn woodland waiting, with the promise of cover should a storm break. They increased their pace, again wordlessly. But sleet began, three-quarters of an hour before they reached the woods, any warmth their layers had provided quickly became reinforcement to the work of wind and ice. Their hair pasted their shoulders and backs, miserable. Lara began to feel a strange, unsteady heat in her throat and skull, though it did not warm her. Everything felt ugly, frozen, and unfriendly. She thought ruefully of the food stores they had shoved to the bottom of their packs, hoping thereby to slow the wetting process that would, no doubt, spoil at least some of their precious hoard. Had the trees come any closer at all? The grey of the clouds had dropped, making horizons indistinct and distances defeating. When at last they reached the beginning of the forest, Jan immediately began scouting for cover. A shallow cave, a tree, hollow, even an overhang with prospects for a lean-to. Lara tried to look also, but she had begun sneezing and shivering without being able to master it. The heat in her head had grown, filling her like a great, dull weight, obstructing thought and mechanical function. The moisture covering everything seemed somehow to run upwards, not in the normal way of things falling from the sky. Or perhaps that had only been in her dream, when the rain fell down rather than up. Perhaps it ought to fall up, to rush heavenward like a reverse meteor shower, going home her ankle gave, and Jan heard her cry out once. When she'd come close enough to hear above the ice rain shattering against the leaves and limbs around them, 
Lara's stream of half-mumbled speech made no sense. She spoke of rivers running backwards to their sources, how heavy the sky was, and suddenly started weeping. I can't move, she said, sinking down with legs splayed out before her. I'm so tired. We should stop here. It's too late for a morning walk. It's always wet when I need to sleep. Jan felt the fever in Lara's skin and looked around them, afraid. She could see very little. She drew Lara's head into her lap and bent back her head, beginning to call out to the goddess. The light of her heart's opening flashed against the storm, and the goddess flung it far enough to be seen. He saw the glimmers from within the partial cave he had reached that morning, when first he'd smelt the storm's approach and felt it in the pulse of the soil around him. After constructing a windbreak at the cave's opening, using stripped evergreen boughs he'd split with his hand axe and woven through with their slick needles to shed the rain, he'd gathered kindling and dry wood for several days' worth of cooking fires. The lean-to he had made last time still stood, but he fortified it, then dug out a pit at the back of the cave where there was a slanting, narrow outlet for smoke. At last he sat, spent, with his rough head between his drawn-up knees. He had been travelling for some time, and his body told of it. Despite all the nights he'd spent in the open, he never slept so well as he did with a roof over his head. He loved the movement, the change of the nomadic landscape, but buried deep enough within him slept the longing for constancy, and it woke in his dreams. His name was Dane, and he did not know yet by what ties he and Jan were linked. He had come to the shielded opening of the cave to breathe the cold air and shake himself alive when he saw the light. He knew heart light when he saw it. This shone urgently through the boles of darkening trees. He lifted his head briefly, the thin brawn of one fist pressed to his chest, then flung an oiled sheepskin cloak over his head and shoulders and ran toward the bleeding shaft. His pace was sure, and he found the girls in a dozen minutes' time. Lara had slipped into exhausted unconsciousness in Jan's lap. The brilliance of Jan's hearts responded to the rain, shivering, stubbornly holding stamens and petals aloft despite the deluge. Jan's face was tight and patient both, and to Dane's eyes, 
crafted of a sacred beauty. He had great strength of his own body and will, and he knew it. It did not concern him, therefore, that he appear strong. And so, when Jan looked up and made a weary, glad sound that revealed the depth of her fear, he knelt before her with his hands pressed to the earth like a suppliant. The goddess showed me the light of your hearts, he said, and I see you are in distress. I have come to serve you. Bless you, Jan said earnestly. We need, have you, shelter? He nodded. If you will, he said, sitting back on his calves and motioning to Lara's prone form. Please, Jan said. Together they strapped Lara's pack to his back, and he lifted her as he would the body of a young sister. He led Jan through the trees to his temporary home, where he laid Lara on his bed within. While Jan sorted their supplies, weeding out the ruined from the dry, he set a fire and constructed a low screen for the girl's wet clothes. He moved beyond Jan's view, stripped his shirt and draped the sheepskin over his shoulders, retrieved his spare and gave both shirts to Jan. Then he said, I will not disturb you, and went to the mouth of the cave, where he sat, looking out into the storm. After some minutes passed, he reached out a hand to the split boughs, and a faint light came from his palm. He murmured unfamiliar words like a keening song just below the range of hearing. The lean-to began to change. Jan was not listening. She felt numb with relief. She undressed Lara, hung the wet clothes by the fire, and put the long shirt on her, covering her with the blanket. She suspected it was the only one this young man had. Rooting through her pack, she pulled out her fringed shawl, slightly damp, and hung it to dry also, as she supposed it would be her blanket tonight. Both their bedrolls were saturated. They put them at the top of the packs, hoping they would soak up the rain and protect the stores beneath. She stripped, pulled the second shirt over her to fall past her knees, belted it, and hung her clothes up. The pallet where Lara lay was too narrow for two, but it was long. Jan knelt at the foot by the fire and waited for her shawl to dry. Oh, my joy, she whispered, mumbling from weariness. Thank you. At the cave's entrance, Dane's voice rose and fell in quiet, steady song. She must have known in her fingertips that he was safe, Jan mused, looking sideways at their rescuer in the morning light, still muted by grey clouds and a cold rain. Otherwise, such bulk of a stranger coming on them unawares would have put her hackles up. 
He handled himself like one capable of fighting, and the hand that had offered her thick coffee that morning had been acquainted with rough work. Its calluses enabled him to grip the mug she could not touch directly for some time till the drink cooled. When she had first woken, she noticed the difference in their shelter. The night before, dull with tiredness, she had not been sensate enough to feel the drafty space behind grown stiller, warmer, surrounded, enclosed. But that morning she saw it. What had been a densely woven thatch of boughs and needles had filled in deep ripples of wood with knots and burls apparently ancient, and the skin-flap entrance now covered a cleft in the trunk of a great tree from whose hollow she looked out on the snow-sunk world. She put out a hand to tentatively touch the bark. "'I thought your friend might do better for a more sheltered place to lie,' said Dane, who had come to stand beside her. Jan looked at him. She will, she said. Thank you. After a small silence, she said, respectful, Is it the goddess? Dane nodded. He gazed up into the dark hollow of the trunk. Oak, he said. Refuge from distress. Are you hungry? Yes, thank you, said Jan. He cut thick slices of a grain bread he carried with him, and they sat together by the fire. "'You friend,' Dane said again, elbows slung over drawn-up knees in a favourite posture. "'She is all right this morning.' "'Better for a warm bed, as you say,' Jan said, trying to discreetly suck at a burnt tongue and glaring at her coffee. "'She's a strong fever about her.' My Emma always knew the poultices. She showed me some, but I'd be strung for where to find their ingredients. Dane was quiet, swirling the dregs. I may be a help with that. She smiled at him. You've already helped a great deal. But I'd be grateful. What do you need? Jan notched her brow, remembering. Root of alderweed, leaves and sap of thervine, and... Something for wrapping, and hot water. He drained his coffee with the dregs and rose, touching his palm to his chest. Wait here, and keep her warm. Jan watched as the width and length of him shrank through the trees, his strides clipping the distance in a practised way. She had a sudden flash of understanding. This one... Is precious, and smiled briefly to herself before turning inside to Lara's sickbed. The Flower of the Cedar is written, produced, and published by me, Kay Benavraham. This content is made possible by the support of my patrons on Patreon. We make monthly pledges they can increase, decrease, or cancel at any time. If you are enjoying listening, 
please consider supporting my work on Patreon. Even a dollar a month makes a great difference to a struggling author. For those of you wishing to support this work in non-monetary fashion, you can tell a friend about the podcast or leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help ratings rise so that other people can find it. Thank you so much.